Welcome to Countdown to the Rising. My name is Anthony Kelly and I'll be your host. This episode, Finding the Finders, is about a satanic sex cult known for trafficking children. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of sexual abuse of children. You have been warned. This group started in as early as the 1930s by Marion Petty, a high school dropout who rented two apartments in Washington, D.C., and claimed that the purpose of this was for anyone who wanted to come and teach him about power, money, or sex. He continued this all the way up until his death in 2004, where he said he was willing to teach anyone who wanted to know about these things. The group's early history beyond that is fairly unknown, as they did not begin to gain public attention until 1987. Before this, they were practically invisible to the outside world. One of the group members said the group was formed in 1972 with the idea of responding to people in emergencies. Others in the group say that the group was created for people to gain power and learn sexual gratification. The group did, however, gather information on people or companies and was initially based off of 1307 4th Street in northwestern area of Washington, D.C. They would gather information by applying for certain jobs. They'd consider it as a a game, if you will, where they would learn of ads for people requesting babysitters or other roles in families, such as cooks, maids, etc., and would spy on these people and gain as much information about them as they can, just for the fun of it, or for blackmail. This cult gained public attention in 1987. On February 4th, police in Tallahassee, Florida, responded to an anonymous call about two well-dressed men at a park stopped with a van with six disheveled children who looked to be as if they were abused. These two men were Michael Howell and Douglas Ammerman, who were in their early 20s when this incident occurred. The children's, children's ages ranged from two to seven, and they seemed to be abused and neglected. All six of them were bug-bitten, dirty, underfed, and were living in the van. When the police arrived, they questioned Howell and Ammerman, about the children and why they were there. They told the police that they were teachers from Washington, D.C., and they were bringing the children to Mexico to set up a school for gifted children. When asked about the children's parents, one of the men became very uneasy and evasive. He told the police that all the children's mothers were in Washington, D.C. The other, however, refused to give any information. When they were told they were being arrested, one of the men fainted. When the second man was told he was being arrested for child abuse, he pretended to faint and fell to the ground. He refused to get up and cooperate, so they had to have three officers carry him to the car. The eldest of the children, Mary, was interviewed by the police. Her responses to their questions raised red flags about the possibility of abuse in their living situation. Mary told police that all the children lived with the men in Washington, D.C., and that's where their mothers were. When asked about where they were going, Mary stated that she didn't know and that they were just going different places. Mary said that they were living at camp at a campground in tents. When the police asked her when the last time she saw her mother was, she said she hadn't seen her since before Christmas because they were being weaned from their mothers. Mary revealed to police that they don't go to school and instead the two men teach them how to read. Mary also stated that her and the other children did things for rewards. They would work and be rewarded with food. Mary also said that the adults had to do what the game caller told them to, and the adults would tell the children what to do. The children were not allowed to go inside of the house. 
The investigator also asked Mary about sexual abuse. Mary became very evasive of the questions and denied any inappropriate behavior by the adults, specifically stating that there was no, and I quote, bad touch between the adults and children. After saying this, she became very fidgety and uncomfortable and frequently asked when the interview would end. At the end, she stated she was hungry and that she hadn't eaten since the end of that morning. When asked what she ate, she said that they were fed raw fruits and vegetables. Throughout the various interviews, the children urinated and defecated on the floor. When police referred, heard her say game caller, they believed the children may have been brainwashed. Another interesting note is that after the interview, Mary told the police that the game caller happened to own a man by the name of Steve. This led them to believe that human trafficking was involved. When Tallahassee officer Scott Hunt reported the arrest to the Washington DC police, he was met with a wild response. The response was, holy shit, we've been looking at these freaks. Customs also got involved with Agent Ramon Martinez from the United States Customs being specifically assigned to this case. They believed that this group, the Finders, had been involved in international and local trafficking through, across state lines. At the time, the police in D.C. thought the group was a satanic survivalist cult. There had been no confirmed sightings of child abuse, but all the clues were leading up to it. They received information from a confidential source that the group was practicing brainwashing techniques. The source also reported that the children were being used in satanic rituals. A search warrant was executed on two of the finders Washington DC properties on February 5th and 6th, 1987, where an apartment and a warehouse were searched. A DC investigator reported what he saw, a clearing approximately 70 yards behind the house and several stumps surrounding the open area. Several round stones had been gathered near the circle. This practice is sometimes used in satanic rituals and evidence that several persons had gathered in the clearing recently. The rear of the residence is covered from the alley by heavy bamboo growth, save a small entrance to the rear yard. In the rear yard was a very small ornate gravestone propped against the support pillar for the porch. The search warrant also uncovered pictures of children holding slaughtered goats. When confronted with the pictures, the parents called it a learning experience. They claimed they were teaching the children where meat came from. However, other photographs were found on these properties. There were many photos of naked children, especially in sexual positions, and photographs of children showing off their genitalia. When asked about this, an FBI agent who did a walkthrough who was assigned not from the FBI's local office, but from FBI counterintelligence said that after seeing these photos, there was no sign of child abuse. During the search, a DOJ review of the case said that they observed a substantial amount of computer equipment and documents purportedly containing instructions for obtaining children for unspecified purposes. These instructions also included the impregnation of female members of the community, how to purchase children, trading children, and kidnapping them. However, one of these instructions were found to coincide with something Mary had told the investigators during her initial interview. Mary had mentioned how she had been able to count to 10 in Chinese that she learned from a man in the warehouse. On arriving at the warehouse and searching, the police found a dictionary from English to Chinese. 
near said dictionary, they found instructions on higher up in the cult on the sale of two children in Hong Kong, and that before they could take part in the sale, they would have to go through the Chinese embassy. Agent Martinez tried to gain access to this evidence to investigate violations of child pornography statutes, the Net Neutrality Act and the Mann Act. The FBI then disclosed that someone has alleged that the finders are involved in a well-organized child abuse scheme and that redacted in conjunction with the State Department and the FBI's Foreign Counterintelligence Section conspired to cover up those abuses. This is backed up by the fact that the FBI's counterintelligence ordered that the Metropolitan Police and that the United States Customs do not inform the FBI's local office in D.C. about any further developments in the case. On March 9, 1987, a memo to the FBI stated that there was no evidence found of child sexual exploitation, kidnapping, or related crimes. A chronology of the finder's probe stated that a third search was executed on a rural Virginian farm by Virginia State Police, where they uncovered evidence of satanic cult ritual. Photos were found of the children covering themselves in blood from slaughtered goats, alongside other ritualistic photos. A Metropolitan Police Department document stated that the Virginia State Police went to the farm and found cages that witnesses claimed were used to keep the children during their visits to the farms. Neighbors reported that they often heard screaming coming from the property where vans would bring loads of children in and out. You may wonder to yourself, how can people commit such hacks to some of the most innocent children? I sat down with Professor John Yezzy of Springfield College Psychology to discuss how people could do such horrific acts. Well, more often than not, when we look at like cults or you know, cult is short for a culture. And like when we're looking at cultures, different cultures can be kind of that, you know, like more recently than not, what we've heard in today's society is that ride or die, right? Yeah. Like, and that's what's come around. And a lot of cultures operate out of that where it's, you know, you hear blood brothers or ride or dies or like this kind of like forever sort of concept whatever term like terminology that the group chooses to use you see it a lot in like gangs or like you know i mean gangs is probably the most used term that hides or mass cults but we like to use gangs because it carries a negative connotation um if you're looking at it cult from different aspects it's like cults are everywhere it's just how like macro or microscopic of a realm you want to operate on like societally we look and go oh that's a cult because they're not abiding by a societal norm well what is a societal norm um you know because like different sports teams have cultures different bikers have cultures different um students you know like you could sit there and say well they're a group of art students that's a i could be considered a cult depending on how they're operating um you know because it's like if there has to be a buy-in the aforementioned file stated that the group who was living on the farm, attempted to take over the city government in Culpeper, Virginia. In April 1987, a D.C. police officer wrote a bizarre report speculating a connection between the CIA and the finders. The report is as follows. It is the writer's belief that the finders organization is and has been utilized by the Central Intelligence Agency as a disinformation service spreading non-essential, non-critical information to various organizations throughout the United States and overseas. 
This group, to the most part, is made up of over-educated non-achievers who lack the inborn initiative to succeed on their own. Therefore, they fell in with a charismatic leader who gave them direction and self-importance. To the most part, this organization is individually harmless. However, when directed and monitored by a controlling factor, they are capable of destructive and illegal activities. As in any cult structure, the main drive is for the group and individual values and ideology becomes lost. Therefore, when a member is asked to perform horrific acts for the betterment of the group, they will comply, regardless of how objectionable it may be. As to the abuse of the children, I do not think that child abuse was a planned tactic of this group. As in any cross-section of society, sick and demented subjects belong to a cult as well. I do believe that the shaping of the children is a planned experiment of this group, as in the case of the Nazis. They strove for a perfect society, thereby in their own way tried to form a group of children and ultimately adults that did not suffer from the ills of normal society, but took only the benefits that afforded them perfection. Lastly, I do not feel that the finders have disbanded to prevent further detection by law enforcement or social service officials. I firmly believe that this group should be monitored in a general sense and in further developments occur, they should be noted. The idea that they operated overseas as an intelligence arm of the CIA or any other intelligence agency is backed up by the fact that passports to the Soviet Union, North Vietnam, Cambodia, China, and various other countries across the world, especially hotspots such as Cuba during the Cold War. Further documents found at the warehouse contained bomb-making and evasion of law enforcement. In Tallahassee, following the arrest of Howell and Ehrman, the children were examined by a doctor to determine if there were signs of sexual abuse. In two of the children, the examiners found that sexual abuse had more than likely occurred. One of the children lacked anal sphincter control, which they suspected was due in part to repeated sodomy. One of the females, the doctors claim, showed signs of vaginal damage due to repeated use of penetration via fingers. With this information, it seems sexual abuse did occur, but for some reason they ruled it out. This led Officer Scott Hunt to state in a press conference that one of the children was sexually abused according to these exams. He said that they were unlikely kidnapped, but it was more likely that their parents had given them away as a rite of passage. He believed that one of the rites of passage in this group was to give up the rights to your children and that the leader can do whatever they want with them. He also speculated that this issue spanned internationally. In an article written in the city paper about the situation, Mike Buchanan, of DC's CVS affiliate, citing police sources, reported that the finders had worldwide connection, used sex and children to obtain power and money, and had two bank accounts with over $100,000 in each one. The Glover Park residence was a breeding house where women exercised great control. The children in custody were like shells and zombie-like. Soon after this press coverage was released, the mothers of the children were found in Tallahassee, spoke to the investigators. According to police reports, the mother said that in late December, the two men took the children to Kentucky to work at a construction job, and the women were going to California for a temporary job. However, when the men and children arrived in Kentucky, the job was at a standstill. The mothers claimed that it was at this point where the men told the children they would be going on an adventure to Florida.
The mothers admit that the two men did not handle themselves well by lying about going to Mexico to the police, but assured them that they had nothing to hide. They also denied being Satanists, insisted that the children were well-fed, and denied any sexual abuse going on. The members of the group consisted of an alternate communal-type lifestyle, made up of intellectuals who have chosen to live the way they do. This communal living included all funds of the individuals being put into one collective fund that the group would determine where it was spent. Although this sounded odd to the police about the children choosing the way they live, nothing seemed to be criminal based off of what cultists were saying. In the end, four of the six children were returned to their guardians, and two were returned to the foster care. How this case took such a weird legal turn, with all the evidence being so blatant, and yet it being ruled that there was nothing to see, baffles the mind. I sat down with Professor Gary Birdie of the Springfield College Criminal Justice Department to discuss the legal proceedings of this case. So, do you, what do you think could have been an, an impeding the investigation into the finders to like such a massive extent? You know what? I can't even begin to imagine unless I put myself, you know, my head back in those times. You said the 1980s? Uh, it was more of the 1990s. 90s? Well, that's not... I'm thinking in terms of technology. Nowadays, they could have uh, used all sorts of, uh, you know, checking on phone records, uh, computer images, um, you know, the dark web, all that other stuff. Because a lot of these, or many, if not most of these cults now use the the internet to connect with each other, to set up meetings, to communicate, even if they use some type of, you know, code. So without that, there may not have been anything direct. Um, are, were, could the kids or the children have been so brain scrubbed that they didn't know any better? That, uh, you know, were they kidnapped? Were they the children of these people? Were they, you know, sex trafficking? Or were they just involved in this crazy cult? Um, the only thing I can figure out is that the officers involved didn't have enough expertise to recognize what was going on. And that's that's not that's not unheard of. Now, um, in a case like this, they would call them special investigators, you know, special victims units and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, how do you how do you determine, you know, child abuse back then? You know, I'm not even sure, you know, unless you actually have an assault battery and there's not custody issues, you know, who, uh, you know, who's going to complain? I mean, are there parents involved or a family involved or is it just the, the, you know, law enforcement or public officials involved? That may make a difference as well. Yeah, it was, there were, um, it was pretty much like a commune almost and the kids, most of the kids' parents identified themselves as being of the branch, but the others. Okay, that makes, and... See, that makes perfect sense now. Not that it's good or even, you know, healthy, but it's, yeah, I get it now. That's probably why parents can do what they want to do with their children. Not, you know, not completely, but maybe that was, you know, the, the blockage back then, you know, the, the part that interfered with a solid investigation. Yeah, the thing was, though, is that there were they found in the warehouse and on the ranch, like, thousands of photos of children in a sexual manner, like doing sexual, imitating sexual acts, or, like, it was pretty much child porn. And they found thousands of photos of it there, and it was, like, you know, or film back then. And Anthony, was... I, have, I have no idea why. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, that's evidence, and that's clear. That's clear-cut. Yeah, and there was, like, crates of it. 
you think maybe it was a jurisdictional thing? Like, was it the federal government? Was it the the state, the county, the local? Yeah, it it was weird because they found uh, one of the files I read. It said something about they found a bunch of passports to countries like North Korea and like oh, really? Vietnam and China and Russia. Were these were these parents that are involved? Were they were they U.S. citizens or foreign? They were U.S. citizens. And they were traveling to those countries. Yep. Now that can't help me wonder about some type of uh, international intrigue that maybe this could have been a front or in addition to, uh, you know, the the sexual mis you know abuse here. What was the name of that cult again, please? Uh, the Finders. The Finders. Okay, got it. You're creating such a curious. Um, <laughs> case here i i'm sure i'm gonna have to follow up when we're done later on or, or in the fall with my next you know with our classes this is crazy yeah it's like there's a level of intrigue but then some people like will take it to like conspiracy levels sometimes but okay yeah i mean there is definitely something there though like if you just look at it from like a fact-based standpoint it is like a very unusual case it's certainly it's, it's the well. It's as weird as many of the cult cases we've heard about. In in the violence victimization class I teach, we do study cults for a while, and this is not unusual. There's a lot of um, cults that become cult when it is sort of just a cover for uh, you know pedophiles. Yeah, it, I and, know. Uh, it was like it started off. Um, I read the uh, files. Because they, that's pretty much, I haven't read any articles on it, except, like, the old 80s ones. But, like, the, um, if you just read the files, it was, like, it start they, they self-identified as, like, a commune for better living. Uh-huh. And they were led by some old, like, World War II vet. And he was, like, he called himself the Game Master. And he was, like, they'd play games, quote-unquote, with the children. So it was kind of, like... If you put two and two together, you could tell there was, like, you know, sexual exploitation of the kids. But... Yeah. There's some stuff, I'm just quickly, I'm doing it. Some people, some theory, conspiracy theorists um, think it was linked to the CIA, but who knows? I haven't gone that far. There's, like, over thousands of pages of stuff on the finders and the files, so... But one of the things that, that we have to be thoughtful of, and it, you know, again, it doesn't make it any better, it's that and a lot of times people will use religion or the concept of a commune to cover up for criminal behavior. You yeah. know, and, you know, and sometimes they think it's for real. I mean, we could look back over many cults. Um, but yet, whatever it is, it's not good for the children. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine, like the damage and mental scarring that'll do to you having to be raised in it. Yep, for sure. I mean... Um, so, go ahead. Oh, no, I was gonna say, I can't imagine, like, how many kids in general, just because, like, the neighbors, when they were interviewed, um, they were told, or they told the police that, um, on regular occasion, they'd see them walking, like, different-looking kids who, like, weren't from around there that they didn't recognize around the ranch, and they'd be, like, screaming they'd hear. 
and they'd see like vans driving in and out of the place. So. Oh crap! You know. Yeah. It's pretty. It's it's. I think we're much more effective nowadays to you know investigate address, and we have newer laws than back then where we can you know get the children out of there and sort it all out. It sounds like they did that. They started getting phone calls, and that's what makes it really dangerous. And, uh, you know, I'm, you've, you've certainly um, created a great deal of uh, curiosity on my part. Every day is a good thing to start learning, right? Yep, definitely. A report was written by Agent Ramirez in 1987 that became public not until 1993. The report said that the DC's police investigation of the finders was dropped because the CIA claimed it was an internal matter and therefore everything must be classified. This prompted the Department of Justice to conduct an investigation to determine if there was some sort of cover-up occurring. The investigation found no evidence and the case was closed in 1994. Ramirez was not the only officer to try and further the case and reopen it. A redacted officer from the Metropolitan Police Department was stated in the files to have also been with Ramirez in making efforts to reopen the case. Upon further inspection, Sergeant John H. Stitcher of the Metropolitan Police was this other officer helping Ramirez to reopen the case. Shortly a few years later after the original happenings of the case and in the subsequent process of reopening the case, Stitcher was found dead, ruled a suicide. The weird part about this, however, is that during the initial investigation, Stitcher told Ramirez he was approached by an unknown person who told him that he had best walk away from the case for his own interests. The CIA commented on the case, stating that there are only two connections between the agency and the finders. Marianne Petty's wife, Isabel, Petty, who was employed by the CIA from 52 to 61. She died in 1984. The second connection was related to a third party company. The agency used this company for computer training that employed members of the finders and members of the finders actually worked in the said company as officials. However, Marion Petty's ties to the Intel agency are very intriguing to say the least. Petty served in the United States Army Air Force during World War II, and he served as a master sergeant, as a chauffeur. The thing is, however, is that a chauffeur is usually a role intended for intelligence agencies as a cover. Now, that's not to say that this role doesn't exist, because many people do have the role as chauffeur, but some are assigned this role as a simple cover to move around. Petty was a chauffeur for some of the top generals of World War II, and was known to brush shoulders with many in the intelligence agency, including the OSS, the then precursor to the CIA. His connections into the intel agency have sparked whether or not how deep does the rabbit hole go in the finders' ties to the Central Intelligence Agency. 21 former finders were interviewed about the group and the organization. They said it began as an alternative lifestyle in the 1960s, and many of them, however, left the group because they became disenchanted with the quasi-military order under the direct supervision of Redacted. Many of the former members stated that they feared retribution from the Finders organization. A female, who was a former member of the Finders, needed police intervention to stop harassment. In another case, 
a property was burned down and remains an open case regarded as arson. Family members who spoke to detectives stated that the group had brainwashed their children and prevented any contact with their children or grandchildren. Finders members would coerce relatives to stop contacting their loved ones by sending blackmail describing explicit sexual acts involving current members, including photographs. The Finders once attempted to take over a family residence and force a woman out of her home. In 2004, Marion Petty died, and it is speculated that the cult died with him and is no longer active. Although Marion Petty died in 2004, the legacy of the cult continues on. As just recently, in 2019, the files regarding the case were released in the FBI's public vault. I highly encourage many people to go and read these files as they are very interesting and provide much more detail than I can. The interesting fact about these files is the amount of redactions in them. Even with the congressional effort from representatives from North Carolina and Florida to try and investigate the connection, this report took 20 ish years later to be released and most of it is redacted but that which isn't contains many interesting details thank you for listening to this episode we really appreciate your support tune in next time for episode three the lord of the ants which discusses the ant hill kids a cult in canada led by roche thoreau a break off of the seventh day adventist church thank you for listening and take care